0: The U.S. military camp towns were established shortly after the Second World War in 1945, appropriating the Japanese comfort stations. The Korean government actively supported the creation of camp towns for its own economic and national security interests. Utilizing the Japanese colonial policy, the U.S. military and the South Korean government sought to control camp town women's bodies through vaginal examinations, isolation wards and jails, monitoring women for potential venereal diseases. Denigrated as a traitor for mixing flesh with foreigners, camp town women and their labors were disavowed in Korean society. However, the Korean government also depended on Camp Town Women for its economic development. Camp Town Women's earnings accounted for 10% of Korea's foreign currency. Speaking against the silence, Grace Cho's new memoir, *Taste Like War, brings to light not only the pain and trauma of militarized violence as experienced by her mother, who worked as a Camp Town Woman in the 1960s and 1970s, but also the beauty and poignant resilience of her life. At New Books in Gender Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, we are pleased to have Grace Cho talk about her new book, Taste Like War. Grace, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm really thrilled to have you and just like talk about your book, which I really loved. Yeah, so thank you for being here. Um, so I was especially excited to read this because as a grad student I were I was already in love with your previous monograph, Haunting the Korean diaspora, and I was really impressed by you how you challenged the academic discipline by weaving together stories, memories, art and scholarly writing. Can you tell the audience about your previous work and how this informed your writing of Taste Like War?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much also for the kind words about my first book, which I'm I'm happy to hear still has relevance after all these years. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to let people know about haunting the Korean diaspora was that. Although I wrote it within the context of a doctoral program in sociology and then later being on the tenure track um, in my current job, it was really part of a personal project, right? So it was all my whole body of work, I would say, is part of this personal journey that began when I was 15, which was the, the year that I myself diagnosed my mother with schizophrenia. <laughs> um I went at the time. I went to a uh, community mental health center that basically said that there was nothing that they could do for her um, when it was apparent to me that something was very wrong—that she was hearing voices—and so I, I turned to my high school library, which had a copy of a, a psychology textbook and of the DSM, and I diagnosed for myself with schizophrenia. Um, and so that year. I developed this sense of outrage that nobody was going to help her, right? And so once I got to college, and then in the years immediately after graduating from college, I started to ask these questions about what the social experiences were that broke my mother down. Um, And that, in fact, is what led me to sociology, because as I was, you know, in my, I guess I was about 25 at the time. And I met a a sociologist, um, Stanley Aronowitz, who actually encouraged me to pursue the study of sociology to study that project. So I entered my doctoral program. Not because I was thinking I was going to become an academic, but it was because I wanted to have the structure to write and research the social context of my mother's life. And at that time, really what I focused on was her life in Korea, because that was a complete unknown to me, because she never talked about Korea. She never talked about uh, what she did, what her life experiences were like. She didn't talk about the war. I barely even had any awareness that she had lived through the war, but there were, you know, there were a couple of moments that then reminded me that she, that she was a war survivor. So one of the things I focused on when I was researching haunting the Korean diaspora was uh, civilian experiences of the war, and you know, as I was doing that research, I also sort of found that the war restructured society very radically and created these new bodies, and such. A, one of those new bodies was. Uh, the Camptown Woman, the Camptown Woman and her biracial children. And those bodies became the subjects of South Korean biopolitical campaigns to sort of rid the nation of physical evidence of American imperialism. Um, and, you know, these figures were very profound in shaping the collective psyche of the Korean diaspora. So when my book was, when it was a dissertation, I primarily focused on the figure of the yanggungju which in Korean translates as Western princess. Um, and so I sort of looked at these women who were called Yanggongju, who were either um, girlfriends, wives, or sex workers for the American military as a ghost that haunted the Korean diaspora. Because what I found was that in every, um, every place where she should have been, there was evidence that there was an erasure. So it happened not just at the level of the South Korean government trying to you know, push these women into the margins and hide their children. It also is evident in um, the, dis- the official discourse of the Korean War or U.S.-Korea relations. And then also for me, I guess most, most profoundly, in the sociological discourses of immigration, because... <clears throat> It was these Korean women, the camp town women who married American soldiers, who really became the engine of Korean migration by sponsorship of other family members. Yet even within the United States, within those Korean communities, these women were sort of um, pushed into the shadows and, and were regarded as a family secret. And so, you know, I sort of thought about all of these serial erasures and how even through the erasure there's sort of this this spectrality this trace that animates the next generation um yeah
0: exactly yeah that's what i found was striking about your book as well how you're showing how young even though they are uh, erased and uh, you know they are you know uh, memories of shame that uh, you know like uh, neither like korean americans or koreans really want to acknowledge but then you really show how they're actually quite fundamental to you know like the korean americans and like how koreans uh, as a whole like as a ghost and yeah i think uh, it's that i thought uh, was like really beautiful and very poignant um, and that really ties like nicely to my next question which is um, you write in the prologue how you decided to write taste like war or to come to terms with your mother's death like how you were talking about how it was a very personal project like both haunting the Korean diaspora and taste like war because haunting the Korean diaspora was not enough um, what do you think Um, you know what about taste like war that allowed you to heal and how did you decide on the jungle because it's like part memoir and part sociological investigation and then um, you know linking it back to you know uh, your um, you know your really wonderful point about how especially like Yang gongju are missing in sociological discussions about immigration uh, you know how do you see your work as a tribute to your mom as well as a larger community of former Canton women who actually consider the first immigration wave to the United States.
1: Okay, wow, that's so. There are a lot of questions there <laughs> to unpack. So, so just please remind me if there's some if I don't get to one. I and you could you can sort of repeat it so that I could uh, remember to work that into my response. Um, yeah, you know, I really thought of my first book as a tribute to the larger community of Camptown Town women, and. And it wasn't so much that I didn't think that that was enough. It was that during the production of Haunting the Korean Diaspora, when the book was in press, my mother suddenly died of an unknown cause. And, you know, it was really uncanny because i had just gotten the cover design of the book and i was looking forward to showing it to her and you know then i found out that she had died i went to you know this is all in the memoir this sort of, the story about how the book was in production and she died i went to the the mortuary to see her body and then when i returned home to my apartment i received the manuscript of haunting the D- korean diaspora from the copy editor and so i had to reread it all as I was, you know, in the, the very early stages of grief. Um, and so it was, it was a, a little uncanny that that all happened. But it, it was interesting also, because she was sort of the figurative ghost in haunting the Korean diaspora, but she was still alive then. You know, so the, the figure of my mother as the ghost in my first book is really more about the past that she was hiding that carried forward into our life in the United States. But once she died, she would, she became another kind of ghost. Um, But the kind of ghost that is not, um, you know, that doesn't churn up these sort of, you know, upsetting or disturbing feelings, but one that was really about all the tenderness and love. And so in that moment, when I was trying to grapple with her, Totally unexpected and mysterious death, all of these memories of her came back. You know, and they were often memories of her before she became schizophrenic. And so I started to write them down. And in all of those memories, she was cooking, feeding people, foraging. She was really active, vibrant, charismatic, almost the polar opposite of what we come to think of as somebody who's schizophrenic. And so my original writing uh, at that time was not intended to become a book. It was really just that I wanted to capture those memories because I realized that both her illness and the process of doing the research and writing of haunting the Korean diaspora sort of buried that first mother that I had because all of that stuff was so weighty um, that this was sort of an act of of resurrecting the first mother from my early childhood. Um, So it wasn't even a conscious thought that I was going to be writing another book to deal with her death or that I was writing another book because the first book wasn't enough. It was more that it very organically arose out of the process of grief. And yeah. And I know, I I mean, I guess to your question about healing, what was it about it that allowed me to heal? I I guess I want to start by challenging the idea of healing. (laughs) Um, And I don't think that you're necessarily using it this way, but I think in the U.S. we sort of have this discourse around healing that I find very problematic because it often suggests a sort of closure when in fact, grief doesn't work that way. You know, it's not that you simply get over your grief, which would seem to be, you know, the, the demands that others were making of me at the time, or even as I was doing the research prior to my mother's death to get over the trauma. Um, I really want to think about how we can use grief as a way of, uh, you know, like a form of care work that continues to honor the dead. And so I wasn't really trying to, you know, as, as the project sort of developed into the book, I wasn't thinking that it was going to put my grief to rest, but that it was a way of continuing to care for my mother even after she had died. And in a way that was, I guess, another way of bringing her out of the shadows, because I think in Haunting the Korean Diaspora, I wanted to bring her and all of those women out of the shadows in a way that, that, was, that really honored the experience of what they went through so that it could be disconnected to the shame. But I think for my second book, I wanted my mother to be seen in this larger way as somebody who... who wasn't just a stereotypical psychotic, right? Somebody who had this life before that who and who had a, lo- a lot of capacity to do these amazing things. Um, she was a really talented and charismatic person. And she also really liked attention. You know, like she had these dreams of becoming a singer or um, some sort of performer. And so for me, it was also a way of, of sort of showing her to the world. Um, and I think, in, so somebody asked me at a recent, book Talk What I think she would have thought of this book, and I, I think that she would have loved the attention because i 've gotten some really <laughs> interesting feedback, like, Oh wow, you, you know your mom was amazing, and you know she was your mom was my hero, and so I try to m- imagine her sort of basking in the glory of that
0: <laughs> mm, yeah exactly uh, yeah it 's really beautiful, and I really resonate with that too, because like in a way. Um, Overcoming grief, or like you know, this like linear model of illness that we have in the states where we just recover and that's like final, in a way, tell you to like say goodbye to your pain when you don't actually want to either. Because I guess, like, yeah, and it's like interesting that you started writing and actually, um, you know, the first thing that came to your mind was food and like your mom, your first mother, and like the love that exists because I think it just shows how intertwined pain and love is and I think this is also like what I love about writing as well because like writing is like not necessarily like closure but process um, so that yeah so that you know, you're constantly you know putting things together and like coming to terms and it's never over you know you're all doing it and you realize something about yourself and then you redo it and you realize something else and I think that's like also the beauty of like this like process uh yeah yeah so I'm yeah so I'm really glad that yeah um yeah you pointed that out and also I just wanted to say that I also loved your mom and I think my <laughs> yeah. and I like my favorite part like I mean there were many parts that I loved but one of the parts that I really loved was um you know like uh you talk about how uh, your mom wanted you to do well at school so she decided to host like a dinner party and then she basically made her own like really beautiful dress and then she cooked for the community and then you talk about how she flipped the script between like the host and the guest and I thought it was really interesting how you know like you talk about like your mom and our food uh, which I thought was really interesting so actually maybe I can ask you about you know what uh, I mean you talked about like how food was one of the first things but what do you think is actually so you know like special about food um, and you know why it's it kind of gave like this like a sense of like empowerment and like illustrates so much about your first mother and also like what was it about food that was also kind of subversive, you know, because like with foraging too, you know, she was also feeding the community with what she got. So in a way she was helping people to survive as a foreigner, you know, when she was uh, being, you know, an outcast in the society, she was also such an integral part. So yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there, food is a really important theme in the book, you know primarily because when i ha- started to recover these memories of her food was always there you know she was so she did so much with it and so it led me to sort of ask these questions about why Why was she, you know, why was she such a foodie? I mean, before that term foodie ever existed, but she was just really into food, into cooking, all sorts of things. Um, We just had massive quantities of food in my house when I was growing up and she would make these really elaborate meals. And so from that aspect of it, I think that that was about reminding herself that she had transcended where she came from. Right. So she was a, ch- a child during the Korean War. Um, I have a chapter in the book where I write about her, the one war story she ever told me before my asking. And that was about how she had become separated from her family and survived for, she said, three seasons on rice and kimchi as a nine-year-old child, you know, away from her family, sort of not knowing where they were or if they were still alive um, and basically starving. And so also as I was doing research for my first book, I read a lot of oral histories from Korean war survivors who talked about how they survived off of going to the American military bases and buying bags of garbage that, that had like the leftover scraps of the food that the, the American military personnel didn't eat like half eaten hot dogs and hamburgers that were mixed up with like cigarette butts and uh, used napkins and things like that. So I also imagined my mother doing that. Right. Um, so thinking about like what that war generation had to do to survive, what kinds of things they had to eat, um, the kinds of sort of undignified acts that they had to perform to be able to get this food. And then once we immigrated, you know, there, there were not a lot of good things I could say about where we grew up or my mother's experience in the, you know, in this small town in rural Washington state. But one of the good things was that she, she definitely felt like she had an abundance of food and that showed in everything that she did. So it was sort of this reminder that at least in this one way, she was very wealthy. She was wealthy in food. Um, and it wasn't just the substance of the food because as, time went on in this community, and she learned how to forage and developed a business around selling wild blackberries and mushrooms, I think she also realized that she had this capacity, right? So this capacity to build a business, she developed this knowledge of the forest that nobody else had, as far as I could see in this town. So she became an expert, and it was something that elevated her status and made her feel powerful because, you know, the selling of these goods was, I don't think it was simply for people's survival because plenty, you know, people got, could get plenty of food from a farm or the grocery store, but it was sort of a specialized product that she had, right? I mean, if you think about nowadays, if you go, let's say you go to a farmer's market or you go to a specialty store to buy foraged produce, it's really expensive, <laughs> you know? And that was, that was something that my mom did like way before this became popular <laughs> in, the, in the culinary world, right? Um, so she was really ahead of the curve there. And I guess your question about, um, I think, he, did you ask a question about her political power or something sort of?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, like subverting uh, the, uh, yeah, like uh, the script between like host and guest. Yeah, like the foreigner. Yeah. Right,
1: right. Yeah, so she developed this sort of political tools around food too, about sort of showing magnanimity to people who rejected her either in overt or subtle ways, right? By inviting, you know, that the party that you mentioned was, that was a party, it wasn't for the general community, it was for the school community, right? That she did not have any cultural capital. She, she didn't have any, uh, you know, English literacy skills that a lot of American parents will use to try to give their children an advantage. But what my mom did have was that she knew how to cook well and she knew how to throw a party and, and be a hostess. And so she had invited the entire school system, like the whole staff of the school system over to our house and made this very elaborate meal and then started to, you know, make this an annual party. Um, and this was sort of a way of making sure that all of those teachers and principals knew who we were and knew who her children were. Right. And so this was um, this was one way that she sort of subverted the script of the sort of, you know, outsider, low status, working class immigrant woman. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now that you you know mentioned like her incredible like independence, like yeah, I'm also like uh, thinking about all the other examples, too, of how she work all the time. And uh, yeah, she uh, uh, and then like this actually. Uh, connects to the darker part of the uh, history and like uh, the social aspect of schizophrenia that um you really illustrate uh, through your book um, but um, she was working at the um, I think it was um, uh, I think it was like incarceration
1: yeah it was a juvenile detention center yeah so basically a prison for children <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah yeah exactly and then um you talk about how like uh, you know um, uh, when you uh, when you started like writing and in this like process of like remembering um you uh, you thought about how your mom did express her discomfort and like I guess more than discomfort too like the pain and then um, how this uh, you know accumulation of trauma uh, you know connected to schizophrenia um and this um I, this also connects to you know what you were saying earlier about how food is was an incredibly beautiful memory of, of to like both of you but at the same time um, because of the war you know it's also connected to this painful part of the history um so i also wanted to ask you a question about you know um the history the politics of forgetting, um, as, and like how this issue, you know, connects to schizophrenia and individual trauma. So how this individual, seemingly individual trauma, is actually quite social, and how something like you know the Korean War and also the violence that was uh, happening in juvenile detention center is like linked through this violence and that schizophrenia, is later shown by your mom.
1: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, I I mean I th- one of the main things that I want to do in the book is to search for the the social roots of her schizophrenia because in 1986 when I was 15 and first realized that she had schizophrenia the the discourse around schizophrenia and around mental illness more generally was that it was a biological disease. There was a genetic cause. And that the, the cure for it was also biological, right? But, um, you know, you could you could prescribe drugs that might correct the brain chemistry, but that there were no roots in the social whatsoever. And so what's interesting about that, so, the, you know, in, in this part of the book, I, I sort of draw upon a book called Our Most Troubling Mad- Madness, um, Schizophrenia, a case studies in schizophrenia across cultures. So it's TM Lerman and Jocelyn Morrow, but they sort of go through this history of how American society has thought about schizophrenia in the 1960s. The thinking was exactly the opposite that it was psychoanalytic. It was uh, caused by the mother's lack of attention to the child. And then by the 1980s, this had completely flipped to erase all of the social, partly partly because of sort of trying to compensate for blaming the mother, but also because of the rise of the, the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so there's a forgetting in there that we once thought about schizophrenia as something that was social. Um, and so in this book, she also then talks about how the research has started to go back in the opposite direction towards looking at the social and looking at... Um, So, you know, what they call social risk factors for schizophrenia, there are six that are very clearly identified now that have been reproduced over and over again in the in the research studies. Um, And so, you know, I talk about how in my mother's case, five out of six of them apply to her. And some of them are a little bit more obvious, right, such as sexual or physical abuse during childhood or during youth. That that one, we often tend to assume that if that's happened, that might lead to a poorer mental health outcome. But one of them was immigration, right? And so in our stories about immigration, we usually sort of um, focus on the success stories. There, there's just no shortage of immigrant success stories. We don't look at how immigration might actually make you more likely to become schizophrenic. Um, the other one that I talked about quite quite a bit in relation to my mother's case was this idea that if you are a person of color in a white neighborhood you're more likely to become schizophrenic and not only that the fewer people there are of your kind in that white neighborhood the more likely you are to become schizophrenic so you know in in my family's case when we moved to this town in rural Washington state in 1976 we were the only immigrants the only Asian people, the only people of color, you know? And so my mother was sort of navigating all of this um, by herself, sort of completely isolated in that environment. Um, yeah. And so there is quite a lot of the social, and I, I really want to suggest that schizophrenia is more of a social disease than it is a biological, because let's say you take away all of those social risk factors. Um, will you know, what are the chances that that person would have a perfectly fine outcome, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was really pained to, you know, read your experience, uh, growing up in Chehalis, uh, Washington, uh, I think, yeah. And then like also of your mother too. Um, cause I, I also grew up in a largely white town. Uh, I, I, uh, immigrated when I was uh, an elementary school student um, and uh, I was actually bullied and then uh, for a long time I internalized it as I felt but then uh, thinking back like I remember this like one incident where this girl was like uh, oh like because I was speaking Korean to someone but there was no Korean in my school so I don't know if I was calling or something but then yeah but then she was basically like uh, oh like oh stop speaking that dirty language or something and then um yeah so i think looking back you know a lot of it was racialized but when you're young you don't think about it and yeah i was really struck by how you know like you also mentioned in the book how you could you you didn't like no one really noticed your mom's schizophrenia because um yeah because like it did feel like everyone like was persecuting you you know like it, it did yeah because you know oh, you were the only asian and you know you talk about like other you know asian families that come and go and then also the adoptees which also show this like complex you know history of you know the militarization, um and transnational, um yeah, like the, the history that links like the US and Korea through its like a military complex. And, um yeah, so I, I I was thinking a lot about that too when I was reading your book and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Yes. I mean for sure I think that those those instances of being bullied, you know, I think that when that happens over and over again, these these are parts of, uh, you know, part of that equation around immigration being a social risk factor for schizophrenia. Yes, because you do internalize it. And it's this, this constant stress. Um, Yeah. And as you were saying, the, the things that the first signs of my mother's schizophrenia were things like paranoia, saying that people were persecuting her. And it was hard to tell it was, you know, it, it was not obvious that 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 was a sign that anything was wrong, because that was true. It was absolutely true from the very beginning, <laughs> you know, that there were many instances of, you know, not the people that we invited over for those cocktail parties, uh, you know, not our next door neighbors, but just random people from the community sort of um chasing after her. I mean, I have a scene in the book, literally being chased in a car by a group of white teenage boys or incidents like that, that happen over and over again throughout the time that we're living in that town in which if you are that person of color, um, if you are that immigrant, you are going to understand that you're the target. So how much of that internalization of those real events then sort of like flips a, a little switch in your mind crossing over into paranoia, right? And so also what I'm you know, getting at is that what we think of as paranoia actually has a basis in reality much of the time. It's not something to be dismissed. And part of the, the way that psychiatry treats symptoms of schizophrenia is that they are just that. They're symptoms that don't necessarily have any meaning or basis in reality. And that the way that you treat them is with drugs to make them go away. Um, But one of the things that I want to suggest in the book is, well, what happens if maybe we don't dismiss them and make them go away, but we actually pay attention to them and understand them as a kind of communication about that person's life history, but also about a larger history, right? So I do that primarily with thinking about the idea of voices that talk to you, because psychiatry would say that those voices are meaningless, But then, you know, there, and I'm not the only one who says this, there's like a whole movement of people who want to rethink what the voice means for the voice hearer. The voices are trying to tell us something. And in my mom's case, sometimes those voices were talking about Korean history, the history of US imperialism in Korea. So as I started to listen to them, it gave me leads. You know, it wasn't that those voices ever told me a coherent story, but they were clues about what I should be researching.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that reminds me of yeah, um, Oki and how you write about them, and then um, how your friend husu um told you that it sounds like Oki, a common name in Korea, and you know you reflect on like, oh, it could be my mom's lost child, or like a madam who brought her to a camp town, or more like generally like Korean women who are like forgotten. But then yeah, I was thinking about like how you know um in representing like all of these things like. Oki okay, is actually a historical product, you know, like because like Lost Child too, you know, like the history of adoption is so intricately like connected to imperialism that yeah, you can't like take it apart. Um so like in many ways, yeah, it just like embodies how you know multifaceted like historical trauma and its lasting legacy is.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And maybe I'll just say for readers who or for listeners rather who haven't read the book. Oki was the name of my mother's voices. Right, so she had a pl- plurality of voices but they had a singular name, Oki. Um, which I first understood as Oki because they emerged from an oak tree that was in our yard. So I thought that oh, it's spelled I thought it was spelled O A K like O O A K like oak tree. But then as you said my friend Hosu said, well, that sounds a lot like Oki. So then I started to do all these different thought exercises about who Oki might have been, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I I thought that it like made a lot of sense honestly um because you know like you also talk about how like your mom will get really traumatized by like loud noises too and then think that and, oh, you know it's like a bomb uh, you know like or like yeah, like someone's shooting and then like we all have to hide under the blanket, which really does like represent like, you know, like so many women's experiences in Korea, like how like the sexual and military violence is also like interconnected. Um. Yeah, uh, so I, I really appreciate how you also like, you know, connected to schizophrenia and like advocate, uh, you know, for us to like listen to the patient and like not just see them as a patient, but rather, you know, like think about how society has actually created these, like, realities. And, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting to think about just the differences of how this experience of hearing voices is understood in the United States versus in another another place, right? So in Korea, so my, my understanding from, uh, from what Hosu has told me that in Korea, people don't really use the diagnostic language in many of the parts of the world outside of the West, people don't use the, any diagnostic label for hearing voices. Um, and there's also some suggestion that using the label actually makes the symptoms worse <laughs> and that there has to be some other way of conceiving of this experience of hearing voices. And so in some places, um, the, the way to approach the voices is by integrating them into your identity, engaging the voices and integrating them into the identity. And in some places, rather than stigmatizing the individual um, and medicating them, it's working with the community so that they can understand how to best incorporate that person into the community and not let them be an outsider, right? And and so I think that we have a lot of lessons to be learned from how you know, various communities approach voice hearing or any sort of psychic experience that falls outside of the norm rather than just what we do here in the U.S., which is to medicate and incarcerate, right? So we haven't talked about that here, but I talked about that in my book as well, um, that more and more it's the police and it's prisons that take on the social problem of mental illness.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't know about this before, but I was struck by how you talked about it. Um, it was reconceived in the 1960s as a protest psychosis befalling black men who suffer from delusional anti-whiteness. And then they were given 10 times the appropriate dosage of Haldol, uh, which just i i was like crazy i mean i always knew that you know medical industrial complex was a thing but i didn't know like this part of the history so i was actually telling this to my medical school friend being like you know <laughs> always gotta be careful about what you're doing <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah
1: absolutely yeah i mean that that part i was referencing um jonathan metzel's book the protest psychosis in which he looks at how schizophrenia, um, pretty much overnight in the 1960s, was recategorized because they revised the DSM. And prior to prior to 1968, um, the associations with people who were schizophrenic tended to be uh, white, often middle class housewives or. Men who were um, who were feminine or sensitive, but generally this this idea that people with schizophrenia were um, misunderstood and harmless. But then, because of the civil rights movement, um, schizophrenia was sort of rebranded, redefined, and rebranded as um, this disease of violent aggression that was associated with the Black Power movement, with um, you know, as I think as you quoted, delusional anti whiteness and it was it, the the book is a great illustration of how psychiatry can be used as a tool of social control
0: yeah yeah social control and also like profit for the medical industry as yeah. well yeah also very connected and yeah your earlier point about you know voices and how they are how- you know, conceptualized differently in different cultures really reminded me of I was reading this book by Honey Kwan on Jeju uh, you know the tragic Jeju incident like in um, du- during Isengman period where you know almost like one third of uh, Jeju population were killed uh, I mean actually don't quote me on the statistics because I never remember the number but it was something close to that and how like women actually um you know would memorialize the Death, like by like shamanistic methods, um. So, uh, you know, kind of like calling, uh, you know, at their spirits, you know, for their spirits, and like also invoking like that history and how you know because like um apparently in Jeju, like almost all families like have lost someone from that you know historical yeah tragedy. Um. So, uh, yeah, like this, you know, rethinking voices is, is like also making me think about how yeah in different culture actually like. Like, you know, utilizing these voices, maybe utilizing isn't a good word, but maybe like conversing or like harnessing their power and like talking, you know, through them, you know, back to the historical past is actually like a way of coping. Um, Yeah, it's like really making me reflect on thinking differently about this like medical illness, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I love that idea. Definitely, especially with <clears throat> with Jeju or at any place where there is like such a large scale haunting, right? And so much of the world doesn't even know about what happened in Jeju, and I don't, I don't even know how, um, you know how knowledgeable Cor- Koreans are about it, right? I think it's also been somewhat of a repressed history there, right?
0: yeah exactly yeah i think the uh mainland koreans like don't know that much about it yeah yeah because um i think all this memory is still like Largely repressed in Korea, while like I think Jeju people in Jeju, you know, like talk about it, they memorialize it, and then you know women especially apparently use this Germanistic methods that are actually quite respected um in in Jeju Island. Yeah, which I was very struck by. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this. Yeah. So this is like I feel like such an important point that I wanted to uh just like. Bring it to the uh, reader of the uh, you know, listeners as well. Yeah. That's like- yeah, yeah. Um, and this is like switching gears a little bit, but then I also wanted to talk a little bit about your father too, um, because um I thought that uh you know the relationship that you highlight was actually oh, really interesting. Um and I think this actually embodies like a lot of like maybe parental relationship too. This like complex like love and hate, I guess. Um yeah, so you know, on the on the one hand he was a participant of the US Empire making. And, and you know he you talk about how like later he got more and more into like almost cultish like conservative politics um and um, but the, on the other hand you know it's he supported your education, like loved you know literature, and showed you love you know to some extent. Um. So I want, yeah, I wanted to ask you about this, you know, in you know this tie ties between intimacy and violence, and um, uh, what the process of writing about your father was like for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think it's pretty common for there to be ties between intimacy and violence. I mean, not necessarily physical violence, but if you think of the whole spectrum of violence—psychic, you know, symbolic—like a lot of that operates within these uh, these intimate relationships. So I think intimacy sort of, you know, enables that that to come out a lot more. Um, so it's it's not anything that's unique to my father. But I had a very difficult relationship with him during my coming of age experience as I started to understand my mother's history and understand how he was positioned within that, right? That he was a member of the military. He met her at a camp town, um, And then at one point I confronted him about it, but couldn't even see his own complicity in my mother's situation whatsoever, right? That he's really saw himself as a savior um, who had rescued her, who had rescued us from this third world place and given us a better life. And, you know, like, and a lot of what I do in the book also is to show how this, this town that I grew up in, which was my father's hometown, um, was a terrible place to grow up if, you are, if you're an immigrant or a person of color because there was so much xenophobic violence that was going on, so much misogynistic violence and the way in which you know, misogyny and racialization um, get mixed in this experience if you're an Asian American woman, right? And so I showed that both for my, for my mom and for myself, but he was unable to see that coming from a place of white privilege, you know, male privilege, having grown up in that town, being very established. So a lot of the time when I confronted him about what was going on for me, he just couldn't believe it. He couldn't understand it whatsoever. And so I think that's sort of like the working of, um, you know, the blinders that, that white privilege can put on, on someone. Um, Yeah. So it was a very complicated relationship as my own consciousness developed. It got more and more complex, but I also, what I hoped to do in the book was to show him as a complex person, even though I didn't, he doesn't get a lot of space on the page. And in fact, I had a whole chapter that was just about him, but that got edited out of the final version of it, just because it seemed, you know, his story was a little bit too peripheral to, to the story of my relationship with my mom. Um, But I hope that there was enough in there about my father to show that he He also was not a stereotype, right? Because we have, we sort of have a stereotype of who, you know, the white supremacist Trump supporter is. He didn't look like that. He was not the stereotypical, you know, member of the U.S. service that sort of like, likes to go carousing around the military bases. Um, He was very mild mannered. He was super sensitive and emotional. He would cry very easily. You know, and, and he also had this intellectual streak that you alluded to, because, you know, he watched and read a lot, he, like he he was very well read. And he even, um, you know, consumed a lot of liberal media, <laughs> that seemed to be his preference. Yet he's, so that's why when, you know, when I was in my early 20s, and I discovered that he was a supporter of David Duke, I was completely shocked, because it didn't sort of line up with what I knew about him, you know?
0: Yeah. I wonder how that happened. Like whether it's like the people that he was surrounded with that, that led him to make that decision. Yeah.
1: Well, I think some of it was the influence of the community, but I think some of it also was his age, right? Because he was a lot older than my mom and he was born in 1919, growing up in this small town. Right. And so, the idea of the society becoming more diverse and multicultural and you know civil rights movement all of that i think by that time he was already pretty set in his ways and his ideas that it was hard for him to accept that things were changing and so when you have somebody like david duke saying i'm you know or if we make it contemporary think about trump saying we're going to make America great again. We're going to make America white again. That appeals that appealed to somebody like my father, because he was seeing all of these changes as something that was very threatening to his world order.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think like what I really appreciated the part about your father too was that especially in this political climate and, you know, like with Trump too, you know, as you are saying, like especially with the harrowing experience with the, the re-election, which I think we have to like reckon with uh, at some point. um, I think yeah, it really showed us like how polarized, um you know, the US society is. And also I think it's like important to kind of go beyond stereotypes as you're, uh, you know, showing and kind of like ask ourselves, like, how do we get to this point? I mean, you know, because it happened before Trump, right? It was happening all along. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like just like dismissing Trump as like crazy or like Trump supporters as crazy on people, like white people from like the rural area is actually Kind of counterproductive um so i really appreciated how you know you were drawing these like nuances you know with the figure of your father and like how nuanced he was as a person too yeah yeah so- yeah yeah of course yeah um so I did want to like end the interview like with your mother (laughs) um, because you know she's like the most important figure yeah so my um second to last question was um you you know back to your mom and you know all the food and I I think like even though like I cried at the end of the book um I still somehow felt hopeful like it's really weird because I felt incredibly sad and like heavy, but then also like I felt like there was hope, um, you know, at the end, um, so you know because your mom starts to recover with Korean dishes you cook for her, and I felt that you were reconnecting with your first mom, you know, like uh, you know, while you know, yeah, yeah, you know, you're like bringing her back to life, um. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, when you cook now, like, do you still think of the ties you have to your mother and like to your past and to korea
1: um yeah yeah definitely i mean i don't have the occasion to cook korean food as often as i used to when she was alive right because i was doing it regularly then um but i there are still some dishes that are really important to me so sangtae which is the old-fashioned fish stew recipe that you know in the book i talk about how when I first cooked this dish for her, which she, she told me how to make, um, she said that she hadn't eaten it for 40 years. And then it became this revelation that the foods that I was cooking for her were actually my grandmother's dishes. So it was incredibly meaningful to me that I now had access to this piece of my family history that had been forbidden my whole life up until that point. So I cook Seng Te every year on the anniversary of her death. Um, Pretty much I limit it to that because my, my son is vegetarian, so he, he won't eat it. So I just sort of cook that dish ritually. But, you know, there are some simpler things like miyakuk, bibimbap, sam, kimbap, all of those things. I have part of my regular rotation of meals because of having a child now it's really important for me to make sure he knows those knows Korean food. Um, Those are the ones that he likes. So I keep those in regular rotation and he's been eating those foods since he was a baby. And my son, I mean, he mostly looks white. So, you know, anybody would looking at him would probably, I just identify him as a white child but he calls himself Asian American (laughs) and he, he called, he has a pretty strong identity as a Korean person, even though his primary connection to ethnicity is through the food. And, you know, like in the sociological literature, looking at assimilation, food is always the last thing to go. That's the last connection, you know, after people lose language and all other connections to culture, they'll still be eating the food. And so through that, I've been able to sort of, you know, give him something to grasp onto, and for me, it's like a really—it's not something that's trivial because it's so intimate. You know, to have the sensory experience of knowing what Korean food tastes like—it's um, something that's really deeply imprinted on us as children. These these flavors, um, and so I know it's something he's going to carry with him his whole life. And currently, if you ask him what his favorite food is, he'll say kimchi. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's wonderful. You know, nationalistic Koreans yeah. would be very proud. Yes, yeah. yes for, sure,
1: for sure. Yeah. And, you know, like slowly I'm sort of introducing him to language. He's doing some language, like story, Korean story time, things on Zoom and stuff. And so it's it's sort of like, you know, raise this interest for him. And I my hope also is that I can create an environment for him where he where he feels proud of his Korean heritage, and also when he asks questions about my family or my family history, that I'll answer him because it's the opposite. So I grew up in this environment feeling ashamed of being Korean and also never getting any answers to to my questions about the past.
0: But then like he can be proud. Yeah, oh, that's really wonderful. Yeah, and then, yeah, I love how it's like like a beautiful cycle too like in a way like you kind of became your grandma in a sense that you know you are cooking yeah for your mom and then there's now your son who's kind of getting all these like Korean food that your mom liked and then like yeah it's like uh it's a it's a really beautiful cycle I, I feel yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting <laughs> yeah. to watch it unfold <laughs> yeah exactly and i i hope that he will learn korean and maybe he will go back to korea and he will stay connected yeah we Um, were
1: we were actually supposed to go last summer but didn't because of the pandemic but i think we might go next summer
0: so yeah oh yeah that'd be really wonderful yeah yeah korea is like hot in the summer but it's like such a fun place to be yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah we are you know Nearing the end of um you know the podcast but then there is the traditional final question that i would love to ask you which is what is the new project that you're working on right now
1: yeah well so i'm sort of still in the middle of like promotional events for my new book so it's it's been pretty busy but i have a couple of things in the pipeline one is that i've been co-editing a book about it's called uh, the children of the people Writings by and about CUNY students on race and social justice. So I'm doing that with my colleagues Rose Kim and Robin McGinty, and that should be out early 2022, I think. And um, also, I, you know, like the the experience of writing this memoir and thinking about my adolescence when I felt so disempowered, sort of inspired me to think about writing young adult. Young adult fiction, or maybe children's books. So I think that's maybe one of my next projects.
0: Yeah, yeah, I actually always wanted to do that too, and I do think that representation is like really important. Um, so yeah, I hope that like uh, children can encounter your uh, book and then like actually feel empowered by it, and then uh, imagine that they can write to, it and then you know be in a place that you know you are in and yeah and stuff like that yeah 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 oh that's that sounds really amazing yeah thank you again for oh you know this like this wonderful like podcast like you know i had so much fun that like time just flew by yeah (laughs) yeah thank you so
1: much it's been a pleasure talking to you you're a great interviewer thank you (laughs) oh thank you
0: yeah oh thank you grace